This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today we are joined by, well, really a legend in the podcasting world, Jordan Harbinger. Now, I don't think you're in the Hall of Fame yet, are you, Jordan? I'm not. In fact, I wasn't necessarily aware that there was one. Maybe that's maybe that's the definition of legend. So checked out that they don't know <laughs> that there's a Hall of Fame for the thing that they consider themselves uh, doing professionally. Now you have um God, you have such a huge background. Started as a lawyer, mm-hmm. and nobody's perfect. You, well, there you go. But the good thing happened. You got fired. Congrats. Yes, thankfully. Exactly. And then earlier this year, you uh, were fired again. I'm good at that, apparently. It's one of my strong skill sets. But I would argue that the best things in your life have come out of being fired. Yes. Maybe we can all draw something from that because in reality, we get stuck in a situation that's comfortable. We're afraid to do anything. Sometimes we need an external force to push our, push our luck. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, really. Um, and maybe I should stop talking over your intro, but you know me, so I'm probably not going to be able to to do that. <laughs> but, it's unstructured after all. But uh, you're right. I think for me, I'm a little bit risk, not risk averse. I tended to, in some areas I play it safe because, or, or I don't look a gift horse in the mouth or whatever sort of cliche. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that that can sometimes keep you stuck. I agree. And I, I would argue that I've, I've listened to you um, prior to starting this podcast. I, I was already a, a fan from time to time. I'd listen to different episodes, but I was also a fan of Mixed Mental Arts, soon to be the Brian Callen Show again. And I listened to an interview with you on there. And you really showed in that interview how you were just chafing. You, you hated what you were doing. And it, it came through because mm. you were probably the weakest endorser of your own program I had ever heard. You kept qualifying everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a good sign when you do that generally. No, no. But what I, what I love though, is that now you're doing the Jordan Harbinger show and I notice it right away. And I'm going to guess that maybe one of your favorite all time episodes in both shows is Bill Browder. Yeah, he was great and off topic. Well, if, well, maybe not though, right? Maybe not off topic. Well, what is a topic? And, and that's a, a good, good course to study here. Sure. What is actually a topic? I, I think, what I've seen from your show and admire is that you um, have managed to get takeaways in every conversation and turn it into a class or a lesson. Yeah. I think that that stuff is important. Um, I don't, the way that I look at the shows on the Jordan Harbinger show, the episodes, I should say the individual ones is that you have to earn every minute of a listener's attention and you know, they can just turn you off or skip ahead 30 seconds or, you know, they're doing so. They're at the gym. They don't have to listen to what's on the radio. They're 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 listening to your show because they downloaded it. So there's 87 other shows in there where they're going to give it a try that their friends recommended, and now they've got yours in there. So for me, I always think, look, if I'm going to listen to something for an hour, do I want to come away with like, yeah, that was whatever, but at least I got a workout in, or do I want to go, that was interesting and. I can go download worksheets that have to do with it. And I learned something about how to negotiate a salary and I don't have to re-listen to it to get the salient points. I can go to the show notes, grab the worksheets. There's a sort of, a, each episode was a mini course on a specific topic, even if it's sort of off topic, like Bill Browder was avoiding being killed by Vladimir Putin, you know? And I, so I wanted to get a really good interview in there with him to explain sort of a global topic. I did an episode on money laundering uh, mm-hmm. and 
but I also do episodes on how to negotiate your salary, like I just mentioned. So that sort of diversity of topic is important to me, but the the key the key through line is there's always something interesting enough to keep the listener's attention and not just by default. And then also there's something that the listener can take away and use. Even in the money laundering episode, it was like, okay, I'm not teaching you how to launder money as far as you know, but I am gonna make people aware of a certain subject that makes them look at something in a different way. And then we had some cool practicals from that detective about how to think about problems because he's an expert detective and an investigator. So that type of thing for me, I wanted to set the bar higher for other shows because I think there's, and you, I don't know what you think about this, Eric, but there's a lot of shows where it's like, we interview entrepreneurs and then talk with them about the same thing that other shows do when they come on. And then you're asleep. Sure. I would argue too that um, Bill Browder, his story is worth it. Even without a takeaway, you're haunted by the story. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving with something no matter what. And maybe that is another qualification. There, there could be a, um, a heavy lesson in there, a life skill like your friend Alex that you did uh, three shows with, or just the story itself is so rich and profound, you've got to get a hold of it. Yeah, we recently had an episode with a guy who escaped from North Korea twice. Actually, we did two episodes with him because it was a long, long show. And people were like, well, what's the practical? And it's like, well, look, this is a guy who escaped from a deadly regime, got caught, got sent back, went to labor camp, you know, was orphaned, had to take care of his dying mother. She finally passes away. His family's treating him like crap. You know, it was just, but it was inspiring in a way that was very usable and practical. But also, yeah, the story itself, like you said, it's just, you. It, the story itself is worth it. You know, you hear from this, you don't, we don't get to talk to people who escape from North Korea because even when they leave, they're being hunted by this regime. And so being able to sit down with somebody like that for, three hours is something special right and is it could it be said too now that it's a jordan harbinger show you can do this and you're taking advantage of you know what it's my show i want to talk to this person i need to be motivated to come to work yeah well there's definitely the motivation factor but there was also there was something going on when i was with my old show where yes i was being forced to shill some like dating stuff that I really didn't believe in at all anymore. You know, I dealt with people that I didn't like working with quite a bit that I think were just taking advantage, frankly, of, of me and the whole team uh, to sell garbage that I, 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 did, I thought that, you know, this is something that could be sort of rescued and it just ended up being a problem. We can focus more on that later on if you want to get into that. Uh, it's a little bit of an aside from the current set of topics, but it, there is something about it being my show where it's not just motivation, it's legitimately a much more worthwhile pursuit because I'm not alienating a whole seg segment of guests. You know, with, with my old show, there would be pe people who would think this isn't for me because, and they would, you know, just fill in the blank, some stigma attached to the name, or, you know, uh, they feel like it's for people who are too old or too young. Or, and with the Jordan Harbinger show, people go, oh, you know, you need to name this something different because there's no benefit it listed in it for the audience and, and all that. And I think, you know, it's not just, I didn't just name it the Jordan Harbinger show because it's, it sounds cool and self-important to have your own show. It really was just flexibility of topic along with, you know, I'm just not that creative with naming things, but it was flexibility of topic. And that was really important to me because I don't know if next week or next month, I'm going to talk about someone who escaped from North Korea, money laundering, or uh, Bill Browder, who's in, you know, running from Vladimir Putin, uh, or if I'm gonna interview, 
a former pro wrestler or uh, somebody who spent their life in politics trying to change the world in one way or another. Like these are the types of guests that I'm able to have now on the show. And that is, it's not only emancipating and, and a huge relief for my team and I, but I get to pick what's useful for the audience. And I don't have to say, cool, and how do I then shoehorn this topic into, so buy my thingamajig, right? Like, come to my seminar about how to be X, Y, Z. I don't have to do gymnastics like that, where, you know, last year I had the head of the CIA, NSA, on the show, and I had him recently back on the Jordan Harbinger show, and I didn't have to say this time, and that's why it's so important to be charismatic in all your interactions with other people. You know, I don't have to do that crap anymore. And it's that's just a massive relief because it's like how some shows don't have advertisers because they don't want to have, I guess, a conflict of interest, so to speak. Sure, sure. And even a perceived conflict of interest is bad. And I just don't really have to worry about that that much anymore. Do we have live training? Yes, but most of it is for military and corporations. Is it my chief place where I earn income? No, that's a huge relief. Whereas before, if if sales on programs were low, it was like crisis all around me. And I just was like, I just want to do my show, man. You know? Mm -hmm. And so if you're worried about selling toothpaste ads, then, and, and you're a highly political show, for example, you've got to worry about what you can say. And I just don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm not controversial anyways in what I do or, or say, I don't think. But now I just don't have that conflict. And I find it easier to book guests now because before there were plenty of publicists that would say things like, yeah, we'd love to do this, but there's this hmm. glaring thing where you're kind of a dating show. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, and also it's... I think that it's important to have your identity on the show because in the end, there's 600,000 podcasts. The only thing different about your show is you. You're the differentiator. So it might as well be your name. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, and I think, I think that that's true for every show. Now, I'm not one of those people who's like, you're your own best you. Congratulations. I, I think that's sort of like weird iGen or millennial stuff right. but at some level it is the only thing that will differentiate you right because it, the only thing you can really build aside from a following on social media or an email list is the personality and the skill that you bring to the microphone which you then deliver to the audience so that really then becomes the only thing that differentiates you from another another broadcaster, especially if you're doing an interview show, which is why we were joking before hitting hitting the tape that the reason I don't cover business, wellness, financial advice, things like that is because everyone does. And even if I'm like, I'm gonna do a better job than everyone else, it kind of doesn't matter after the 87th interview with somebody who's a financial guru, there's just kind of no, there's nothing in it for the listener that they haven't heard at least part of delivered poorly at any rate. And so it becomes pointless to try to do something better. It's kind of like being like, we're going to redo, I don't know, what's the worst, most hated show on television? You know, like we're, we're going to redo some, what are those MTV reality shows, but we're going to do a better job. It's like, no, we're good. I don't need Jersey Shore with better cinematography. You know, I'm good. I'm all, I'm all set on that. So 
it's it's better to not have to worry about how you're going to differentiate yourself by doing something that it doesn't need to be done again in a better way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that brings me to one of my, I guess it's become a hobby horse lately, or I've been focusing on it a lot because I'm a new show. I started in March. Oh, congratulations. I didn't realize that because you know what you're doing from the sound of it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I mean, I could be wrong. You could, this could go horribly wrong in a few minutes, but you know, for now. I I can't trust Jordan Harbinger. I know that. Yeah. But hey, what are you going to do? No, one of my concerns, and I, I've talked a lot with Dave Jackson about this um, when I interviewed him and um, James Cridland, but the industry, I feel like podcasting has a problem and we are all focused on, look, it's growing. It's great. It's growing. But the truth is that when they bring out the stats saying that 68% of people know what a podcast is, but of that 68 Uh, maybe 40% of those actually have listened to one in the past month. And when you start going down to fans and frequency, the number becomes very minuscule. I fear that the medium has a reputation of being like Wayne's world and local access cable. That's funny. I haven't thought about that movie in a long time, but you're right. (laughs) It, it, it kind of does remind me of that, except, you know, so what what does that mean then? The shows that you actually get listenership are Wayne's World and the shows that don't are just the other ones on public access cable? What it means to me is that, and celebrities, I think, are, are screwing it up even more because their publicists are telling them, you've got to get into podcasting. They're huge. So they go put on a half-assed show. People, you know, their fans automatically go to listen to it and they're like, oh, it kind of sucks. And then they confront the celebrity and say, you know, that kind of sucked. And the celebrity and their publicists all say, well, yeah, but that's not the real art. That's that's just a podcast. Oh, interesting. I haven't really experienced that, but that totally makes sense. Well, it's it's one of those weird things, but um, you're, I mean, you're an average overnight sensation taking ten years or so. Yeah. But you're so far on the top that you're circling in the crowd of quality. You know, your peers are the Tim Ferrises, who are all on the top of the game. So you're kind of. You're on the boat above the water. All the other podcasters are in the water. Does that make sense? I I think so. I'm not sure I follow the analogy with the boat thing, but I appreciate the compliment. Um, I think, look, I'm one of those guys who's like, please don't start another podcast. And then people get all indignant. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, man, you don't have to get indignant. I know that some people are not going to listen. They're like, you're limiting my freedom of expression. You're trying to discourage me. No, I'm not trying to discourage people who want to be creative and do uh, have a creative pursuit. I'm actually just trying to, dis- to discourage the people that go, all right, I got a book about financial management and everybody who's an author says that I need to have a podcast. And so... I'm going to start one and I need to know what mic to get. Oh, that's expensive. Is there a cheap one? Okay, I'll get this one and I'm going to do it in my bathroom because that's the place in my house where the door locks. And, you know, yeah, there's a leaf blower out of the window, but I don't know. It's fine. It's only a podcast. And, oh, the guest can only uh, come in on a landline or their cell phone from an airport gate. That's fine. It's cool. It's it's going to be this big entrepreneur guy. So I don't care if he's got announcements and talking in the background on Apple Airbuds. This is going to be great. And then they do it, and then they're like, oh, nobody's listening. Oh, podcasting sucks. I don't like it. It's too much work, and I only got 300 downloads. That 
I try to discourage because then people, I don't care if they hate the medium, it's not really our problem, but what I, I don't want people to do shows because it's, I don't want it to be the Snapchat of, of the year where it's like you remember when people were like, if you want to build a following, you have to be on Snapchat. Well, guess what? I didn't do that. You know who was right? Look at this guy <laughs> who is Snapchat now. Uh, 14 year olds that didn't see the Kylie Jenner tweet that nobody uses it anymore. I mean, does it's not even a thing, you know, and, and I did the same thing with Instagram and Instagram's huge now. So don't listen to me about all that. I'm hardly a <laughs> profit when it comes to what's going to be popular and what isn't. But I also remember being like, you look, Twitter has legs. Uh, I, it's got a thing that other things don't have that I think is going to last a while. And then Periscope came around and everyone's like, you got to do this. And I was like, nope, I don't want to. And nobody uses that now either, unless you're Scott Adams. So it's just, there's these trendy things and podcasting's having a moment, but it's not gonna be the kind of moment that goes, oh, nobody wants to use this anymore. It's gonna be the kind of moment that blogging had. Remember when people had personal blogs and they were like, mm -hmm. no, people wanna know that I got up and I felt kind of sluggish today. So I went to the cafe and I got some coffee. Here's a photo. Oh, it's so hard to upload photos in this blog. Uh, three weeks later, nobody's reading this. Oh my gosh, this is what my traffic looks like. Why am I still writing? You know, But now businesses have blogs or people who like to write about topics have blogs. And they're really mm -hmm. great. You know, people want to read what Mark Manson has. People want to read what James Clear's writing. People want to read Shane Parrish. But they don't necessarily have to have, a, you don't have to have a personal blog, just like you don't have to have a podcast just because you're trying to become a quote unquote thought leader. It's actually like the worst way to make money and one of the hardest ways to gain influence. It's just the only reason I do it is because I have a love for, this format and happen to be good at it because I put in 11 years. Right. And that's something I appreciate too, is that you are very open about the fact that you didn't just, oh, wow, miraculously be good overnight, that you go to coaches, that you put in the time, put in the money, you invest. Yeah. All, a lot, unfortunately. Well, I guess not, unfortunately. I mean, I like doing it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it, but it, 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 it takes a while. It's it, blog. See, people go, oh, why did you do that instead of this or that, the other thing, or how come, you know, why shouldn't I do a show? And I always, it's some version of this, which is like, look, if you're on YouTube, you can build an audience really quickly. You can share videos. My grandma knows how to use YouTube. The videos, you upload it there, it's everywhere, it's a great search engine, it shows up high in Google, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, your audience is 14, 15 years old, it's really unengaged, most people won't play your whole video, even if it's only two minutes long, it's a lot of work, you can't outsource it because it's your face, it's your personality, the end. Now with blogging, a lot of people can read it, anybody can read it, you build an audience a lot slower because people actually have to read something, but if you do get traction, you can hire 20 people and you can never write another word in your life, you just cash checks and manage the traffic and, and you know your marketing team might even do that for you. And you've got this scalable thing and you can hire writers and it's great, the end. Podcasting has the worst of both of those. It's hard to grow an audience, it's a lot of work, people don't know how to access them at all, but also you can't outsource yourself because it's your personality and your voice. So if you get, your reward for getting really good at blogging is you can kind of step back and manage other things. Your, your reward for getting really good at YouTube is you have a massive audience of people that will like surround your stinking car to take photos with you or whatever. And if you, your, but your reward for making a great big podcast is you still have to do all the work. You can't outsource much of anything and nobody knows who the hell you are. Well, you can, you can grow and 
at least like you have a team and that is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you have somebody to help with your booking. Jason does a fantastic job producing. I don't know if you have people who handle your social media or you do it yourself. I do it myself. That's remarkable. <laughs> but that's something I think people need to realize too, is that at scale, if it gets big enough, then maybe some of the work can be offset and the show quality will naturally go up even higher then. Yeah, I think that that's true. You, first of all, absolutely. You can definitely you can definitely outsource the the production of the show. I don't recommend that for newbies uh, because I, I learned a lot from cutting out all my ums and re-listening to conversational threads and going, oh, I remember that being really funny and now I'm listening and it really wasn't. Or, oh, I did a pretty good job with that where I thought I was stumbling around a lot. Maybe I should increase my self-confidence slowly over time. I mean, that was a subconscious thought, of course. But the the amount of filler words, ums, uhs, all that kind of stuff that I cut out by editing my own audio was huge. My cadence of talking changed. My voice changed. I was able to figure out when segments were dragging on too long. I don't know if I'm still good at that, but, you know, I, I learned it initially. And frankly, there were just a ton of things that I got from that. And I think another, that's the other problem with with sort of the thought leader mo- model or mindset of podcasting, which is, okay, so what I want to do is record this in my living room with the windows open and the air conditioner and the refrigerator on or whatever, and I'm going to be flipping through my book and fiddling with a pen on the desk the whole time. But I'm never going to find that out because I'm just going to send it over to some podcast production guy who's going to upload it uh, for me and edit it. And so they never get any better because by the time they would start learning something, they've already outsourced the stuff where they're going to learn the most in the first hundred episodes. And then they make it to episode 13 and they give up because they're not getting, the, you know, the, no one's listening. So my advice is always, if you would do this, even if nobody is listening, then go for it. But if you're kind of secretly harboring fantasies, like, yeah, I know most people don't listen to podcasts, but people will listen to mine. If you're even thinking that that's going to happen in a year, you should not do it because the amount of your, there's just too many, there's just too many late nights where there's no traction and it's not fun then. But if it's fun because you don't care, you're fine. But if you're looking at your metrics and going, uh oh, they're going down. Mm-hmm. This sucks, or they're not going up. What am I going to do? Then it's uh, it's a little depressing, and and that will break most people. I didn't check my numbers for like a year, and I I think John Lee Dumas is, or or one of these other guys has sort of taken that and made it a general rule of thumb: don't bother checking your numbers for a year. I actually didn't even check my numbers much for for probably like four plus years. I remember quarterly logging into a server backend and going, so files have been accessed something like 140,000 times. And that was, of course, that's raw. I mean, this is like 2008 <laughs> or 2010 or something. So I was like, okay, we got this many accessed file, accessed MP3s. So cool, whatever. You know, that pe- some people are finding it, I guess. And that was pretty much it. You know, that was kind of it. That was all we had. And it didn't matter. We got emails, we got people hitting us up on Facebook, and we had our business going, and that was pretty much it. That's awesome, too. I think your Feedback Friday is um, a, a wonderful metric that you could probably use to gauge just by the number of questions that come in. 
Yeah, there's so many questions that come in, and and we can always do an extrapolation to the audience. But there's a we did an Edison research survey thanks to Podcast One, which mm. paid for that because it was expensive. Um, but we got our demographics, you know, our, which most people don't have. We got sort of an extrapolated number based on raw downloads, uh, or sorry, based on downloads combined with a statistic that shows how many people listen to the whole show or at least most of the show, probably the, up to the point where the ads are gone, I would imagine. <laughs> and so they do this sort of fancy statistical math where they're like, okay, if 86% of people listen to the whole show and you had this many downloads, and that means that we can sort of sell this many ad impressions. And I forget what my point was, but basically it's kind of cool <laughs> to see how many people actually listen to the whole thing. Oh, yeah, that's got to be awesome. Now, to change gears again, you are known as a master interviewer, and I, I think that's a fair assessment. Thank you. The, that's nice of you. very king of podcasting, and I've listened to dozens of interviews that you've done. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually quite easy, but... Have you ever done a ton of research? Because I know you spend a lot of time doing research, which I appreciate. And I actually do the same thing. But have you ever done a ton of research only to suddenly right before doing the show, throw it all out? Hmm. It depends. Yeah, I probably have. But I but not maybe for the reason. Well, I don't know exactly what the reason is that you might be hinting at. But Sometimes I'll do a bunch of research and, and I'm trying to think of an example, but nothing's coming to mind. I know that this must have happened at some point in my in the last 11 years, but there have been times where, for example, I do a bunch of research and it's like, oh, cool, this person worked for the FBI and they had this interesting career path. And then when I get them on the phone or on the on Skype or they come into the studio or whatever it is, they'll say or do something where they're like, oh, sorry, I'm late. I was teaching a class about confidential informants and it ran late. And it's like, well, what's that all about? And so instead of going down the path of, oh, so you were adopted from El Salvador and, you know, da-da-da, now you're going after these gangs for the FBI and all this stuff. Instead of that, I might say, wait a minute, you're teaching a class in confidential informants and I'll just go down that rabbit hole and that ends up being the whole show. So, but it's not like I do a bunch of research and I'm like, this person's so boring, I don't want to do a show on this topic. Let me throw all this away and wing it. It's not really <laughs> like that. It's more like I found something more interesting that suits the audience better. And in, in show business, they call this killing your darlings, where you spend mm -hmm. all this time preparing something and you're like, this is the point where I'm going to queue up this really interesting story about A, B, C, D. And then you just kind of go, oh, well, that time has passed for me to queue up that story, and it, it would be weird if I did it. And you just have mm -hmm. to make this immediate sunk cost calculation where you go, yes, I spent time doing that. Now it's, not, now it's gonna F up the show if I do it, so I'm just going to let it go. And it's hard. And most people who are new or don't, uh, maybe they have a, a lot of attachment to it for ego reasons. I used to be this too, like, I worked on it, I'm gonna use it. You do this thing, you, you throw that in there, and it kind of screws up everything else, but you're happy that you got it in there. It's just like, look, you don't have to use a coupon to buy food when you just ate so that you use the coupon, right? Like, it's, it's, that's kind of the equivalent there. You just end up wasting money and, and downing a burger you didn't want. 
when really what you should have done is just been happy that you were full from the salad. And that's kind of the way that it is with shows too, is hmm. you gotta throw away stuff that you spent hours preparing because something better came along. And that's what you're, again, it goes back to being an advocate for the audience, right? You've gotta mm -hmm. earn their attention minute by minute. And the, the reason that that's important is because you owe it to them. They don't owe you the attention just because you prepared. You owe them the best that you can put out. And if that isn't the thing you just spent three hours reading, well, then that's not it. That makes total sense. And that's kind of what has happened with you. As I was studying you, and I'm obsessed about interviewers because that's what I do. Nice. And I can tell that you're an obsessive person too. Mm -hmm. And go, go deep into whatever you're doing at the time. But I finally came upon it because I'm, I'm researching you, I'm researching you, I'm researching you, and half of it is hearing you on podcast appearances, of which, my friend, you have many, 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 yes. many, many guest appearances. And that provided me some insight. That's your secret power. Being interviewed by other people? Correct. I'll You're take the it. expert guest. I would argue your show was built off of being interviewed on other shows. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Now, out of curiosity, though, I think that your show is improved upon by your being interviewed by other hosts, too. How has that informed you as a host? You mean like being interviewed by somebody and then finding... Hmm. finding something that they do or that they have had mm -hmm. that then I import into my show. Yeah, that's probably more of a, it's probably more of a subconscious process. I think I, I'm sure that I've learned a bunch of stuff from other interviewers. I just mm -hmm. don't know what stuff that is. So I don't come off of an interview when I'm like, Oh, that was really cool. How that guy made that joke or, that was interesting how he had that lightning round of questions. You know, I don't really do that <laughs> stuff. Though. I don't have the kind of concrete takeaways of anything like that. I don't really have that stuff. Um, how about the reverse? Of them taking something from me? No, you're saying, ooh, that was awkward. Oh. I mean, not to do that. Yeah, I'm sure that that's happened. <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah, no, it, it has. Because I remember when um, Tim Ferriss had started doing the lightning round of questions, and it was like, what's something you'd put on a bumper sticker? And I was just like, oh, these are cool. And then I told my producer, and he's like, I don't know, Tim does that, and I don't love it. And I was like, well, I like it. I kind of want to do it, and if we have time, I want to do it. And he was just like, ugh, I don't know. So then I started going on shows where they were doing it, and I went, ugh, I hate these. I have to think of something dumb when I put on a bumper sticker. It doesn't inform anybody. It's not useful for anybody. Why is people doing this? And then I went, oh, wait a minute. Do I really want to import that into my show? You know, the, the lightning round stuff can be fun, but mm -hmm. what's the, there's, it's just not really that valuable. Oh, this is something that would go on a bumper sticker if Jordan was going to make a bumper sticker. Oh, this is Jordan's favorite piece of software. Yeah, okay cool, but did you have to interrupt the story about how I developed relationships that saved my business and are the best high leverage tool that I could have to interrupt me and be like, but do you like this CRM? Who cares? You know, I mean, if I'm talking about something that involves that, sure, ask me what tools I use. But I think people just waste time 
doing that. There's nobody, There's I just haven't met anybody that goes, thank goodness that this person reaffirmed my favorite book, or thank goodness that this person told me what they would wanna see on a billboard. And I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to rag on Tim Ferriss, like the way that he does it, it's cool, it works for his audience, he has all uber famous people on that show, so maybe it's more interesting to hear what Arnold Schwarzenegger would put on a billboard, but I just, I don't care what some rando business owner of a pet store in Tampa would put on a billboard. I just don't, and I don't think anybody else does either. So that kind of thing, it doesn't serve very well. You know, it doesn't serve the audience very well, in my opinion. So I do find things like that where I go, no thanks. Uh, other things that I've taken are, I don't, I try never to cancel anything because I know how annoying it is when I've read an entire book. I've watched two documentaries about the person. I watched a movie that they directed and then they go, oh, John is late and wants to know if we can push this till October. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, it's not, and I, I just, it's all fresh in my mind. <laughs> and, he, and I know that it's, look, if you're stuck at an airport in Wisconsin because of a snowstorm, that's one thing. But if you're just tired, well, that's your fault. It's not my fault, you know? So I try to go, all right, if I'm stuck in an airport in Wisconsin, I'm gonna reschedule this Eric Hunley interview. But if I'm just like, oh, I drank too much beer last night. Well, tough, tough rocks, buddy. Get your ass out of bed, get some coffee and do it. Do, do what you gotta do because other people are, counting on you. And so I try not to let people down like that. So yeah, I, I take a lot of what not to do from other people's behavior. I would love to say I take a lot of what to do from other people's behavior as well, and I'm sure that I do. I just can't, I just can't pinpoint the examples as much. One thing that I will say is that I try to learn from personalities that I think do a really good job. So if I see John Oliver and I'm like, wow, it's so funny when he does this, I will also equally say it's so annoying when he has 17 stuffed animals doing a musical. I'm not a child. I want funnier, more sophisticated jokes. You know, but that's a matter of taste. So sure, take that sure. with a grain of salt. When I assume that you're naturally influenced by people around you. Yeah. You may not even realize that you're mimicking or, or picking something up in that. Um, with When you are interviewing, so let me switch to the other side of the microphone. What really delights you? Um, about what, being on other people's shows, for example? Or when you are conducting an interview, either one, what what just truly delights you? When, you know, there's an interview going and I, I hear from time to time, you just perk up when you're asked the right question or when a guest says something, I can hear in your voice that you're perking. Hmm, good question. Let's see, what delights, what delights me? There are things, and you're, you're, you're right, there are things that are interesting. I think it probably, you know what it is? It's probably less, wow, that was such a good question, I can't wait to answer it, and more along the lines of, okay, this interview's been really dull so far. Oh my gosh, they finally stumbled upon something that I'm interested in talking about, let's do it. So I know that sounds a little bit rude, but as you can imagine, when you do hundreds of other appearances, Sometimes you're excited about it in the beginning and then you find like they're asking you, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite book? What's your favorite sure. travel destination? Sure. And you're like, oh, it's gonna be one of those. And so you're slugging through that. And then they say something like, uh, what, have you ever been arrested in a foreign country? And you're like, oh, this will be a funny story. I'll talk about that. So that's maybe a pleasant surprise because otherwise things haven't been going super well 
on that particular show. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, I think things that I haven't talked about before or things that force me, and this is the same thing that would delight me about interviewing someone else, the, something that would delight me is forcing me to connect things in a way that I never have. So somebody before did something where they went like, oh, so all of this stuff, this trouble you got in as a kid where you were like wiretapping phones and stuff like that, all of that ended up being something that got you interested in people because you were listening to people's intimate lives on the phone because you were a bored kid. And is that what sparked your interest in in getting to know people's nonverbal and verbal communication? And I was like, oh, holy crap, I think you're probably right. I never thought about that. Yes, I think that is why I'm so interested in people. I probably had a natural affinity for it because I was lonely as an only child, but then I started eavesdropping on people's phone conversations because I was kind of a phone hacker, and then dot, 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 here we are. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever thought about that like that before. So that's always interesting. When you can kind of cause someone to learn something about themselves, it's always really, really kind of nice. Speaking of learning, did you ever learn stick shift? Did I ever learn how to drive with a stick shift? Yeah, you were abducted, and uh, that would have been handy. I'm wondering if you ever picked up that skill. You know what's funny? I did learn how to drive with a stick shift. Yes. You also said you were an FBI informant at one point. Was this before you were a lawyer? Or? That was, yeah. That was while I was in high school. Actually, that stems from some of the same sort of wiretapping stuff that we had discussed before, because I had found out how to, we called it cloning cell phones, which basically means mm -hmm. when, when analog cell phones were a thing, what we would do is go into the dumpster, dumpster diving is what we called that. We'd go in the dumpster at the cell phone store, pull out the document. That, I don't know why they make carbon copies of things that they then just throw away. I, don't, I never understood the point of that, but they would throw away these sort of yellow or pink or whatever carbon copies of the cell phone receipt and on it was an electronic serial number and a phone number. And all you had to do was take that information and program it into another phone. And so we had people kind of creating software and or buying the software from the cell phone store. So we would take the software, homemade or otherwise, and we would program the information that we stole from the dumpster because garbage doesn't belong to you. And we would program it into the phones. And some phones, if you had the same serial number, it wasn't like, oh, this phone's already logged in, you know, digital phones, they log in, they bump the other one offline, or, you know, one's mm -hmm. already logged in, the other one can't be on at the same time, whatever. Analog phones weren't like that. They were just radios and mm -hmm. analog radios. And so you program one phone and that tunes to a frequency and it gets the same channels and sends on the same channels often enough as the person who actually has that phone. So if you're in the same cell as that person, you basically just opened up a wiretap on their mobile communication. And that that was pretty crazy. So I started doing things like that, and the FBI was like, wait a minute, this is a whole thing. This is a whole industry. Because, look, I'm sure cell phone companies weren't thrilled about a bunch of fraudulent users on their network, and that probably cost them tens of thousands of dollars in lost service fees. Mm -hmm. But they weren't thinking, these people would otherwise be our customers. You know, this isn't this isn't Napster, where the kids would right. buy the music if they couldn't steal it. This was drug dealers and other people anonymously using mobile communication systems. So the FBI was particularly interested in people who were cloning cell phones. And so they had a honeypot, which is where they attract people to mm -hmm. certain places. And there was a bulletin board system, which is sort of a pre-internet way for people to gather and congregate. And it was called CellTech. 
in this bulletin board system was all the cell phone cloners, anybody who was anybody, was on Celtech posting. And I remember trying to get an invite to Celtech. And I was like, what the hell? I've, I've been cloning for a long time. How come I can't get invited to Celtech? And <laughs> I remember people would send me the number to Celtech and I would dial in and they'd be like, who are you? And da da da. And I just, it, there was something going on where they just knew I was a kid, you know? And I'd made my account there and they were like, I would call back and I would be banned and I was complaining about being banned and I would complain to my <laughs> friends, how did I get banned? I didn't even post anything, I just logged in and da da da. And of course, what was probably going on was the FBI was doing background checks on everybody at this honeypot and they were going, this is a 13 year old kid, get this guy off here. I'm trying to help you out. Yeah, they're trying to help me out and also I think what they were doing was they don't wanna make their case to the judge look, these are all hardened criminals. Uh, and a couple 13-year-old kids got looped into our little honeypot here, but everybody else is a hardened criminal. It doesn't look good mm -hmm. for the prosecutor because other people can say, there's a 13-year-old boy on here. What do you mean everybody here is guilty of something? If you're gonna prosecute us, you gotta prosecute this minor. And then what are you gonna do? It weakens your case. So they probably wanted to make sure that I was gone. And I, I remember a lot of these elite guys who later turned out to be FBI informants as well, uh, or or informants for their local, I think it was MI5, the domestic UK sort of, or Scotland Yard or whatever it was. Hmm. I, think, I think Scotland Yard is their domestic sort of security service. And that guy would give me a special phone number and then he would be like, where's the where's the thing that you were gonna give me? And I'm like, I don't have it. And then, then the person would find out I'm 14 years old. And I remember this one guy from the UK called at all hours, all the time trying to get a hold of me. And I don't know how he got my phone number. I must have been dumb and given it to him. And finally I got on the phone with him and, and he goes, don't call that number. Don't call the number I gave you. Don't log in, don't register, don't do it. And I was like, why? And he's like, I can't tell you why, but what I am telling you is it is, it is it's not gonna be good. You're not gonna find anything there. And I remember being so confused about why this British guy kept calling me. My parents were furious, obviously. And later on, it turned out that everyone he was connected with got roped into this and, and tossed into uh, the, it being prosecuted by the FBI. And I, I thought, I think even to this day that he probably went, oh my God, I'm going to ruin this teenager's life and I can't live with myself. And he was trying to call me at weird hours to sort, and he couldn't say, look, I'm a an informant, don't call the number, you're gonna get in trouble. He just probably was trying to help me out because he himself was going down the tubes because otherwise, why bother? Just let the kid call the number, who cares? You know, let the sure. kid register for the bulletin board, who cares? And so, but then later on, I, I remember dealing with and getting caught for some other little thing and the police couldn't figure out how I did it, so they called the FBI, and the FBI was like not at all interested in prosecuting. I remember the police, they were so smug, the principal actually, less so than the police, were so, was so smug, uh, the principal of my school, was so smug when the, when the FBI was there, and she's like, you're in so much trouble now, da da da, and the FBI agent was like, tell me how you did this, and I explained it to him, and he goes, how come you did this? You must be really bored. Do you get good grades? And I said, yeah, I get good grades. And he goes, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, you ever think about maybe, and I remember the principal sitting in the corner, smug as a bug. And he goes, you ever think about joining the FBI? We could really use people who are 
like you. I mean, if you're doing this at age 13, 14, imagine what you're going to be doing at age 24. You got to be on the right side of this. And the principal's face just dropped. You know, she was so upset because she thought this guy's going <laughs> to lay into me. I'm going to get my ass handed to me by an FBI agent. And instead he was like, hey, don't be a dumbass. Keep yourself, keep your nose clean, but keep building these types of skills because we need people like you who are sort of digital natives. You know, we're the first round of this. And he was just thinking like, if it, if the entire Birmingham, Michigan Police Department had no clue what was going on and you had to call Washington, D.C. to figure out how this 13-year-old kid is running circles around us, we got we got to figure this out. You know, we got to sure. we have to figure out how to get more people like this. And so that was sort of what started that because. I started working with them, showing them how to clone cell phones because it was really easy, right? They could force all these people that they were prosecuting into showing them how this all worked. But really, it was just easy to kind of bounce a question or two off me because I wasn't going through an attorney. I wasn't asking right. for immunity. I was just like, yeah, you plug this cable in here. You run this program. Where'd you get the program? Oh, you dial in this BBS, this bulletin board. Here's where it is. Okay, and then you download that and you put that on a disc and then you what? Well, no, you can't run it on a normal PC. You got to get an old Toshiba because it has to run at the same processor speed. And they're like, well, how do you get those? Well, you don't really have to get that. You just have to underclock the processor. Well, how do you do that? Oh, it's really easy. You hmm. just got to. So I was doing that kind of stuff with them, you know? And they were just like, what? You know, how do you, how does this little punk figure this stuff out? And and that wasn't really wh where I did the bulk of my work. Where I did the bulk of the informing was later on when I was 16, I started working for a security company. And this security company, they were they were helping the owner of the Detroit Red Wings hockey team's daughter with her business. And they had a lot of theft. It was a movie theater and all that stuff. And I started working with them and I started working with the security company because I knew how to build websites and all that stuff. And it, that was pretty cool, pretty fun and interesting. And so I started telling them about being online and how there's all this, you know, I'm meeting girls online and stuff. We were talking about meeting women. I was probably 16 years old. And they said, you know, if you really want to find out what women are, are thinking online, why don't you make another account as a, as a female and see what kind of messages she gets? And you can do mm. something different to stand out. And I thought, this is really good advice. I'm going to find out what it's like to be on the other side of the online. I didn't even think, I mean, we didn't call it online dating. I just wanted to know what guys were saying sure. to women on AOL Instant Messenger to get them to respond, right? And so... So that was kind of, or it wasn't even instant messenger. It was just on AOL using instant messages to find out how, they, how to get them to respond. And so I did that and I got all manner of creepy stuff. I mean, this is a profile of like a 15 or 16 year old girl that I'd created because that's how old I was and how old the women I was talking to were because I was 15, 16, whatever it was at that age. And there were guys that were like 45 plus years old being like, hey, I'm a photographer. Do you want to be a model? And I was like, what is this? And I remember going in with with uh, printouts because I thought at the time that it was funny. It didn't occur to me that this was criminal behavior because I was I was too young. Yeah. I remember going to my boss, hey, look at some of these losers. Look at these guys, what they're sending me. And he goes, whoa, hey, this is not comedy. This is this is these people are predators. Right. How often do you get stuff like this? And I was like, I literally just got all this stuff like the after this afternoon before driving down here. And he goes, whoa, man, this is bad. And he so he called his connection also at the FBI and we faxed them these transcripts 
of these messages and they were highly interested in the fact that there were predators and sexual, you know, pedophiles operating on the internet. This was brand new. And I remember they had to send these transcripts on to Washington, D.C. because they didn't have a cybercrime office in Detroit. They only had computer crime stuff in their central headquarters in Washington, D.C. And of course, those people were probably investigating like bank fraud or people <laughs> doing crazy computer stuff in 1995, 1996, probably at a, at high levels, you know, people who are maybe programming stuff for banks that was embezzling money. I don't even know, but there weren't, there wasn't anybody who was investigating online sexual predation. It just was like, nobody even had internet. People had AOL. It was, if you had a problem with somebody on AOL, you, you blocked them or whatever, you know, or you called AOL and they blocked them or they booted them off the service and that was it. There wasn't really a whole lot of awareness around this. And the FBI was really interested because these guys, not only did I have dozens of these guys from chat rooms, but they were really aggressive. And you could tell that they were sending out dozens and dozens of messages probably every day to try to sort of sift through the number of kids that, that were online. And they were, you know, at any in any numbers game, you can you can eventually get some hits, and that's what the FBI was really worried about. It was like, look, if you're a predator and you drive around neighborhoods and you look for kids walking their dogs, and you're like, hey, want some candy? It you know you, you do that long enough, you're going to find a victim, but hopefully somebody catches you before that. But sure. if you are able to stand in the schoolyard right in front of the door where hundreds or thousands of kids from all over multiple cities, multiple states, all around where you are, are in some chat room, right? You're basically right in the middle of all of these people except for you're invisible to the adults because they're not looking for you. You're not driving around a neighborhood in a car looking for the one or two kids that you see every hour walking their dogs without their parents or riding bikes or something. You are in the middle of kids-only chat rooms with no adults paying any attention, and you're able to send them a message privately while you're behind the the anonymous, the anonymity of, of your modem or whatever, the internet. And so that was oh, yeah. really dangerous because your numbers of creepy approaches you know, just went from 10 a day if you're a full-time creepy predator in real life to dozens per hour, depending on how fast you're able to cut and paste or type, right? So these people were probably getting a lot more victims than your average person. And they they really had, they were up to no good. I mean, I remember oh, one guy, again, he thinks he's talking to like a 14-year-old girl. At this point, I'm a 16-year-old boy and I'm helping out the FBI and, and the local uh, PD kind of figure out who these guys are. And I mean, this guy was like, oh, send me a photo of yourself. Oh, I don't know how to do that. And again, you know, early days of the the, the internet. And sure, he's like, yeah, sure. cool. I'm a photographer. I can help take some pictures of you. You know, where, where do you live? When uh, I don't want your parents to be there because, you know, they're going to think it's weird. Um, or they, I've seen a lot of models' careers get stifled by by protective parents. We should meet at my house. You know, can you get away? So Stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is a these are rapists. You know, flat out. This isn't a 17 or 18 year old girl or a 21 year old girl and a 43 year old guy. This is a this is a 14 year old girl, as far as he knows, and he's That's 43. So you know, this is criminal intent. So we used to tell them this this spiel we had back then, this is well before the days of To Catch a Predator, the spiel mm -hmm. we had before then was, 
or back then was, hey, I'm going to Toledo, Ohio. I, again, I was in Michigan. Toledo's right mm-hmm. on the border. We're going to, I'm going to Toledo with my parents for vacation. And he'd go, great, tell me what hotel you're staying at because your parents are, I, it was something like my parents are gonna be gone all day. They're doing meetings for their business. I'm gonna be so bored in the hotel, blah, blah, blah. Oh, tell me where you're staying. So then I would tell them the address of a Holiday Inn or whatever, and this guy would cross from Michigan into Ohio, and that's what gave the FBI jurisdiction because he crossed the lines. <laughs> and so then the nice. you know who I, I never got to be at the center of the bust which is unfortunate because again i was a minor and also they don't need me there for this you know all they needed was my chat transcripts and possibly an affidavit uh that it was actually me but you know that was basically all that that it took and then at that point they would go and they would grab the guy and uh prosecute from there because we were trying to figure out how to get it done with local pd but it's like, oh, okay, where are you located? Oh, I'm here. Where's he located? I don't know. Well, where's the AOL server located? Well, it's here. But what dial-up number did he use? Well, it was this one. So is it Birmingham? Is it Troy? Is it Detroit? Is it Toledo? Is it Dayton, Ohio? Is it Virginia where they're HQ'd? Where, who, what PD handles this? And meantime, every cop on the phone chain is like, what's email? What's an instant wow. message? What's America online? What's a modem? What's internet? And so it was just like, this is never happening. Wow. You love documentaries. Have you um, ever watched Call Me Lucky? No. What's that? It's actually all about that. It's uh, Bobcat Goldthwait directed as Barry Crimmins, um, the comedian. Okay. And he went after um, AOL, et cetera, right around that time frame. Interesting. Because he, he was molested as a child and went on a mission to tackle these online creeps and the that, documentaries about that. Is that on Netflix? Where is that? Uh, it wasn't Netflix at one point. I'm I'm not sure, but something I'm figure you would really uh, relate to. Definitely, one hundred percent. I can definitely do, deal with. I, I could definitely get into something like that. Call me lucky. I'm writing that down. Anyway, that that is an amazing, amazing story, and thank you so much for sharing that. Good sure. God, I I don't think have you have you talked about that a whole lot? Um, occasionally, yeah, not a whole lot. Definitely not a whole lot. Yeah, I, I had no idea that was something sitting out there, and that with that kind of background, I figure that definitely does relate to everything you do because there's a lot of spy things, um, body reading, things like that you seem to be into. Is that a factor when you're um, choosing your guests? Yeah, I like that kind of esoteric knowledge. You know, that stuff isn't for me is is interesting. Like, oh, this person's not going to just teach. You know, I I like that kind of stuff. This person's not just going to be like, you know, here stand up straight and look people in the eye and have a firm handshake. It's like, no, 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 no. There's there's real craft that goes into this stuff. And so now our our training company, Advanced Human Dynamics. I mean, our clients, it's like FBI, CIA, uh, corporations and sales guys for sure, executive protection specialists, bodyguard type people. And, you know, lawyers and doctors and things like that. But um, a lot of the military that we're training, the reason they want advanced human dynamics, me and my business partner, to train them in this stuff is because we've gotten a lot of exposure and a lot of training in this area and innovated a lot in this area. You know, there's there's some element of social engineering that's involved when you're trying to convince somebody that you're somebody else or that you're trying to catch somebody and persuade them to do something that just isn't handled by it's nuanced and people really have a hard time teaching the nuance. You really need a lot of experience doing it. And 
that's why I, I would imagine it was probably really hard for these cops to go after online predators because imagine some 50 year old person who doesn't even, you know, cop who's, who's spent his career on the street catching drug dealers and stuff like that to go. Now he's got to sit in front of a computer and write and pretend he's a kid. It's just not going to happen. Sure. And speaking of that, um, have you ever been burned by not vetting enough? Oh yeah. You know, missing something in research. Sure. Yeah. I mean, mostly what I've the, by being burned, mostly what it is is I just go, "Oh my god, this person is boring as hell." Or there's nothing to this person. You know, but but very it's never been like, "Oh my gosh, we didn't know that this person was secretly a clan member." I never really had anything like that. There's one instance and I won't mention the name. The the time that I got burned burned, I would say was I interviewed this this person who now is quite well known and holds themselves out as one of these like online entrepreneur guys. And I interviewed him years ago, like 2010, 2011, maybe a long, long time ago. I interviewed him and he turned out to be a high ranking Scientologist who was like in charge of harassing people that leave the church of Scientology. And so when I interviewed him, I got a lot of email that was like, Hey, here's, here's, this, this is a bad person. We know that you probably didn't know that, but this is really, really a, a bad guy. And the, the hacking group anonymous back then was sort of nascent, but they sent me kind of a dossier on him, including all of these bad things that he had done and all this investigation that they had done on him. And it was just like, Oh, holy moly. You know, I don't know how I would have found that. It was pretty, Scientologists don't normally wear that stuff on their sleeve, especially back then. But mm. it was, that was definitely me getting burned. And so now when I find, I go to events and, and that guy is there sometimes and I won't be in, I just won't be in photos with him. I won't be on the same stage at the same time, that kind of stuff. He's invited me to his events. I won't go because it's only a matter of time until it's like, this person accused of massive fraud. Oh, and all the Scientology stuff is out now. And it's, it's like, I just, I don't want that to be in 10 years. There's a photo of me smiling broadly standing next to this guy. You know, I just don't want that. So you do have to be careful with it. Look, it's, it's one thing if it's really clear that this was never public, but I think with these, some of these folks, you, you don't want to be holding, you don't want to be shaking hands with David Duke in a photo when you're running for office, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even if you uh, pretend you don't know who he is. Oh, this is before anybody knew. Uh, well, okay, now you got to fight that battle. No thanks. <laughs> no thanks. On that same note, have you ever had an interview that went off the rails? All the time, yeah. Um, not Not recently as much, but there have been... There have definitely been times, yeah, oh my gosh, one notable time, producer Jason will tell you about this too, because we laugh about it regularly, because it was so effing ridiculous. We had a guy who came recommended through a mutual friend who we no longer trust to recommend guests, and it was, they were good buddies, and they had done this sales thing together, and da da da, and this guy won all these sales awards, which, by the way, if anybody ever tells you they've won a sales award... Not universally, but a lot of the time, it's total BS because salespeople, especially realtors and stuff, they love to give themselves awards. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's kind of hilarious in a way. I get it because it makes you stand out, but it's kind of like, no, I'm not in the Podcasting Hall of Fame, but I am in the Jordan Harbinger Hall of Fame for all of the best Jordans that are in podcasting. I'm number one with a bullet. You know, it's like they do stuff like 
Realtor of the Year. And there's 10,000 of them. And the requirement is you pay $69 in a self-addressed stamped envelope so they can mail you back your certificate, right? And and it's like every every uh, zip code gets a Realtor of the Year, literally, uh, sometimes. Like the old who's who. Yeah, it's just insane. And so, but we had, anyway, we had this guy come on and he he would answer questions like this. So, uh, Jim, what would you say is the number one reason that, and I'm, I've, it's hard for me to do fake questions. Fake questions are harder than real questions. What would you say is the number one reason that people are not selling as much as they want to? And, you know, this, he wrote this book about sales. This is years ago when I used to do such interviews. And we would hear, we'd hear like, Oh, God. And I went, huh, what's going on? Are you still there? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just thinking about it. And then I, I'd say, all right, so what do you think is the number one? You know, we'd move on to another question after that. What do you think are the, what are the three cons, the three pillars of uh, good rapport? And you're like, shoo, shoo, shoo. And, <laughs> and finally I go, are you flipping through your own book? And he'd go, yeah, it's just, it's been a while since I've seen this. And I go, but if you wrote the book, you should kind of know at least one of them, right? By heart, like you should have known, like you don't necessarily have to know where it is in the book, but you should know one of them, I would imagine. Like you would have one idea of one, what one might be. He had no clue. This dude had clearly not written the book. Not, nor, not only did he not write the book, he didn't even read the book. Why stop halfway? It was just like, yeah, I mean, unbelievable. So finally, we just kind of, Jason and I were like, I can't believe he's looking up crap in the book. This is unbelievable. He didn't even read his own book. And so I finally said like, hey, look, man, did you did you not write your book? And he's like, no, it's just been a long time. I, and I'm like, but you would, you would know, you gotta, what part of this book are you most familiar with? Well, you know, it just sort of depends. Well, what's your favorite part of the book? You got, cause you got to, even if you don't know where it is, you got to know what one thing that's in it. Right. And he mm-hmm. goes, why don't we just stay away from this for now? Let me tell you how I met my wife or something like that. <laughs> and I said, sure. And I'm talking with my producer, Jason on the back channel. I said, after this story, let's cut it. You know, it's 20 minutes in or 30 minutes in an hour plus interview, but I'm, I'm done. And, and so he tells me this dumb story that's completely irrelevant and he's fumbling because he's really nervous now because he knows he's, sure. he's busted. So after that, I was like, cool. Well, that, I think we got what we needed, man. Thanks for your time. And he was like, yeah, sorry, guys. I just, you know, it's been a long time since I read that. He did, did some lame excuse. And then he emailed <laughs> us right away. And he goes, when's this going to air? And we would just, I just said, you know, there's no reason to lie to him. So, I, so Jason just goes, I don't think we're going to air this one. Uh, looks like maybe it needs a lot of polish. And, you know, maybe we can do another one at another time when you're more familiar with the content of your own book. And he said it in like just kind of this wow. really like tightrope walking way where it's not like clearly you did not read your own book, but we actually kind of, we just kind of were like, yeah, 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 maybe we'll have you on again at another time. And then he got super angry and he sent us all the, I wasted my time going on a show. You're not even going to air it. And I was just like, should we let this go or what? And and Jason's like, I'm replying, you're the one that wasted our time by not even reading your own book. And I was like, don't send that, don't send that. You know, don't, don't, don't do that. I would love to do something like that and tell people exactly why they're blowing it. 
But mm-hmm. since it comes through an intro and it's always like, look, your reputation precedes you. This guy's not going to be around for more than five minutes, but we don't need him to go down in a blaze of glory by being like, Jordan Harbinger was rude to me. We don't need that getting around when he's, this guy's never going to build anything with an attitude like that. You know, an aggressive a-hole who can't do the work, never going to get anywhere. So it's just, that was kind of an, an extreme example. But yeah, we've had stuff like that happen. But I, I would say the guy, that guy who didn't even read his own book that he clearly also didn't write was, was pretty, that was up there. Wow. Yeah. I would be tempted to air it just so people could hear him squirm. I know, but it's also, again, going back to you got to advocate for the listener. It's like, it's funny for a second, and then they're like, wait, why am I, re- why am I listening to this garbage? You know, this sucks. This is BS. Why do I have to do this? Why am I wasting my time doing this? It would be fun for like an outtakes thing, but it's more of just a funny story at this point, you know? So question... For all of us uh, up-and-comers who really can't afford to throw away an interview, what do you recommend? Do you do a solo show or something maybe to put it in or or come up with uh, another means? Uh, if you can't afford to throw, man, I, I mean, I often will cut things up and use parts that I like in something else, but oof, I don't know. We throw away shows here and there. I mean, even now... You know, we'll get somebody who we prepared that was really good has, and they just have an off day and, and we, we chuck it because it stinks. Or you get the, you know, the people who are the worst at following instructions tend to be actually scientists and I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but you'll send them prep and you're like, you need a microphone in a quiet place. You need a microphone in a quiet place. And then they'll show up and they'll be like, I'm using an Apple headset and yeah, I'm in a conference room and there are other people in here working. It's an open office space or whatever. And you're just like, what? What? No, this isn't going to work. And so sometimes they'll they'll go, look, everything's quiet. It's fine. And then, you know, it, five minutes later or 10 minutes later or halfway through the show, there's trucks, there's lunch, there's the cart, there's the food cart, there's the mail truck, there's the, you know, and you just go, Ugh, yeah, I can't do this. So we, we trash things like that all the time because, again, you got to advocate for the audience. You really have to make sure that you're doing what's best for them. The audience doesn't care that, so-and-so didn't use the microphone that you recommended. So-and-so, they don't care that so-and-so forgot it. And I, I've, I've also chucked other things out just because of a bad attitude from the guest. I mean, there was one time we did a, an interview, the audio quality was mediocre. And at the end, I said, well, you know, everybody has off days. And because she said, well, that, you know, this was fun or something like that. And I was like, yeah, you know, next time we'll we'll make sure that you've got uh, everything in order because everybody has off days. And she goes, well, it's your fault you didn't remind me to bring the microphone. And I said, <laughs> there was an automated reminder this morning and yesterday. And she goes, yeah, but who checks those? <laughs> and I was just like, so wow. you got prep that had the instructions. You got a reminder that had the instructions. You got another reminder that had the instructions. And then you forgot to bring the microphone. And that's my fault because I didn't, what, call you? I mean, and then I just went, I can't promote this person. This person is an idiot. You know, this is a, this is one of those, nothing is ever my fault. And I'm just like, right. I don't, that's one of the most disgusting mindsets for me. So I was like, this content is mediocre. It would have, it, it was good enough that it would have been a decent enough episode. But I'm like, I just don't want to send my audience to you because you are a moron. And you're going to blame me because your website broke because I sent you too much traffic. You know, I'm just like, I'm done. So we, we chucked out the episode. I just, I can't stand stuff like that. 
And I try to, it's it, again, even if the episode is decent enough, but the person is bad, I still don't want to send my audience there because I don't want my, I don't, people trust me, right? And I want to build and maintain that trust. So everything, every time I send somebody to somebody that's not good or not good enough or disappoints them, it's a reflection on me, you know? Sure. And, and so, and I have that problem with sponsors a lot. Oh, the code doesn't work. What? Why? Hey, sponsor, your code doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Well, you had you ran the ad last week, and so we made the code good for one week. Well, it's look, podcasts don't work like that. Oh, People God. don't listen the day it comes out. Well, we're not going to be able to reinstate the code. And so then I'm like, well, crap. There's going to be tons of people going there. So then I got to make the sponsor look dumb and say, hey, they dis they disabled the code. Sorry. Um, not our fault. I, I take responsibility. They don't know how podcasts work. And I'll get a note from the agency that's like, please don't do that and throw our sponsors under the bus. And I'm like, please don't throw me under the bus by hooking me up with a sponsor that expires the discount code in two days after the episode runs, you know? And, and so it's always kind of a tension there between us and, and sponsors who don't know what they're doing. And, and us and guests that don't know what they're doing. But if I have to pick who I'm going to stick up for, it's always going to be the audience. It's never going to be the sponsor and it's never going to be the guest. And I think one of the, the keys to getting a great interview is not trying to befriend the guest. The second you try mm. to be friends with the guest, that's when you start doing, you start trying to ask really impressive questions or you start trying to be extra funny for the guest or you try to be chummy and the interview goes downhill because you're, you know, you say things like, like, let's say I'm interviewing Lance Armstrong. Well, should I ask him about the doping thing? Well, no, then he might not like me. So I ignore that. And the audience goes, what the hell? You had mm. Lance Armstrong on your show and you didn't ask him about that. What? They told you you weren't allowed to? No, I just didn't want him to not like me. I mean, imagine saying that. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah. You have to be an advocate for the audience. If the audience is wondering something and you're thinking, I don't want to ask because it might make the guest mad, you have to ask even though it might make the guest mad. That's your job. Your job is not to make sure that they think you're cool when you leave and that you're going to hang out later. You're not going to hang out anyway. You're a media opportunity. That's it for the guest, right? They might like you and they might even like your show, but it's much more important for you that the, that the audience appreciate you that's more important than the guests liking you. And I see shows that do that wrong are horrendous. You know, they, they want to interview all these people to increase their own profile. And it's clearly not about the audience at all. It's about them looking cool. And that sucks. That makes for a crap show. Do you have uh, Jason with you in every interview? Pretty, oh, um, on the ones that I do for the Jordan Harbinger show, Jason's always there. On the ones that I do for other shows, he's, he's not there. Right. Well, I assume that much, but um, that has to be helpful because does he help feed you questions or keep you on track a little bit or have a second mind? Because I will tell you right now, when I interview somebody, I'm scrambling. What, what is going to be the next question? Oh, wait, I'm trying to listen here on this path and make sure that I'm on track here. Oh, no, did he answer that? Does having Jason there to alleviate some of that pressure? Yeah, it does. I, I Jason often won't he well let me, let me see here yes he keeps me on track he often won't tell me exactly what questions to ask but he makes jokes and he'll throw questions in for sure but he doesn't tell he doesn't like feed me at each question or anything like that but he will also he'll he'll never mince words so he'll tell me this part is boring or i'm gonna cut this 
or wrap this <laughs> up. I don't like this. He'll do that, but it's not just like he personally is bored. He will just say, look, I'm not interested in this or, or whatever. And, and I, or this isn't interesting for the audience or move on. And that's awesome because sometimes I will get carried away a little bit. So you need somebody like that. I mean, not universally, but it's been helpful for me because I do get in the weeds. I might get too geeky on a certain subject and say like, oh, I really want to talk about the ins and outs of how this particular thing works. And it's like, that might be interesting to some people, but but probably not most. And so Jason mm. will then say, hey, look, you can indulge this thread, but I think I should cut it out of the final. And I'm like, yeah, okay, good. So there's always, it's always good to have ears on the sh- multiple years on the show. Could I edit my own show? Yes, but I don't want to. And then there's a show notes guy. Could I have Jason or myself just write the show notes? Yes, but I'd rather have somebody else listen to it and make comments. And then we don't have mm. the show notes guy do the worksheets, even though he could. We have another guy who does the worksheets and he's a screenwriter and he comes from a totally different angle of listening to different types of talk shows. So he's got different mm. feedback. So we do that on purpose. Yes, we could make the team smaller, but it's better to have enough people listening to it that you've got a whole team that goes, this could be different, this could change, this could be improved. If you just have the same two people listening to the show, it, it can be tough to, to steer the ship in the right direction. Very cool. Now, what would you recommend to a new and up-and-comer, say me, what would be the focus? Because obviously, you can't have a team when you're on your own and it's out of your own pocket. Right. My current focus is just content. Sure. I would say actually one of the best one of the one of the best actually idea well let's see not ideas practices one of the best practices that actually makes it easier for you in my opinion as a new host is to let yourself off the hook when it comes to when it comes to editing and things like that, like, oh, I can't afford to have a team. You should edit your own show because then you catch all the ums and all the uhs and all that stuff and all the little filler words. You you catch all of these little, th- I sort of mentioned this in the beginning, you catch threads mm-hmm. that went on too long, you catch threads that you should have jumped down. That is actually a strength. And then, yeah, you should write your own show notes. And if you find, oh, there's only, there isn't that much I should write here. Doing it all yourself actually has the benefit of, making sure that you're doing everything you need to be doing. Because again, if you outsource it, you don't necessarily see the mistakes, but if you have to go through your own work with a fine tooth comb, you start to make corrections. And that I think is extremely important. So it's better to not have a team in the beginning because you can improve. The reason I have a team now is because I wanna create a lot more content and I wanna be able to do different things and I'm not at the point where I can necessarily coach myself to get better. I need outside expertise. You know, I need somebody who's a real writer to write the show notes. I need someone who's a real sound engineer to, to do the audio. I need somebody who's a real media person to give feedback uh, and listen to the show. So I hire coaches for that reason. So in, until then, doing it yourself is kind of like going to the gym and working out. Yes, it's better if you have a trainer, but if you can't afford a trainer, the answer is not don't work out. The answer is work out on your own, right? So sure. like you have to do that stuff and get better and put in the in the reps. And so that's that's why I think it's actually good for newbies if they don't have a budget to do everything themselves because then you learn faster. Thank you so much for dropping, I mean, knowledge bombs, past bombs, FBI bombs, mm-hmm. all kinds of information. Now, where can people find you? Obviously, 
the Jordan Harbinger show everyone should be listening to, but you're also doing advancedhumandynamics.com. That's right. Advancedhumandynamics.com. I have a whole free course that I do on adv- advanced human dynamics. What that is, is a, uh, essentially drills and exercises that I use to build relationships, maintain my network. So people are always like, how do you get these amazing guests? I use a lot of these different techniques and skills. Uh, I also teach that same stuff to military and intelligence, and it's at advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one, and it can be done in a few minutes a day. It's just a free course on networking relationship development. And yeah, I, I will be having some courses for civilians soon. In November is the first one. It's gonna be in Las Vegas details there will be at advancedhumandynamics.com and people can always email me jordan at jordanharbinger.com and i'm just i'm just looking forward to having some of your folks come and check out the jordan harbinger show because that's that's what it's all about well hey thanks so much for coming on thanks for having me man i appreciate it hi i'm tyson franklin the host of it's no secret with dr t which is a small business and marketing podcast each week I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. 